From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Ramon Hervey II is my guest. He's a very successful manager and publicist and has shepherded the careers of many greats in, in music, movies, television, and stage. And he's written a great professional memoir that I really enjoyed reading called The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. Ramon Hervey II, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Great to be here, Gary. Thanks for inviting me to, to share some conversation with you on your show. Glad to have you. It's a pleasure to meet you. You know, after spending so much time hearing all the amazing stories that you tell in, in the fame game, you know, I feel like I know you. <laughs> and yet, there's a lot I don't know because you don't tell everything about yourself in this book. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, that you started at Motown or that was, you know, one of the platforms in which you launched your career. So how did you how did you get to Motown? What What happened before you got to Motown? Well, it's funny that you said that because I purposely did not want to write a memoir. So uh, this is really more of a retrospective of my career and um, and sort of a hybrid of my own personal story and saga, you know, trying to make it in the industry as a young black guy. Um, the fortunate uh, intersection of working with many famous people and what my influence is uh, on them. And also just trying to um, you know, this is post-civil rights period, uh, so there wasn't a lot of Black people uh, in the record business at that time. So I really try to tell a story from that, per- per- you know, perception as well. But before, um, so I, I nicknamed, and I think it's in, I put it in the, uh, I didn't use it a lot, but I did reference it in the introduction. I call this a promar. So your your definition, it's a professional memoir, but not a personal memoir. Yeah. Um, so when I first got involved in the music industry was in London, England, actually, before Motown. I was a flight attendant for Pan Am Airlines, and mm-hmm. I was one of the first males and blacks who were hired by Pan Am uh, to be a flight attendant. Um, at that time, they didn't have any males. They were like the last airline, even though they were the most prominent international air carrier at the time. Um, they didn't have any men. So I killed two birds with one stone. I was a minority and I was a male. So I, I moved to London. I got based in London and uh, I ended up uh, getting hired. I got laid off and then I got hired by a, um, I dated a singer for a while and she was signed to an agency uh, by the name of Starlight Artist, a guy by the name of Peter Walsh. And he managed, he represented his his claim to fame at that time was the Bay City Rollers. Mm, I remember them. Yeah, the Bay City Rollers. They're so, the next Beatles. Yeah, they were supposed to be the next Beatles. That's funny. You're one of the few people that actually knows the exact. I know you. You know your stuff now because <laughs> most people have to say, well, you know, they were supposed to be, but you know, they were cheated. And you know, within England, because of all the tabloids, they could really fuel that kind of energy. And and so they had two really great uh, producers, Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, and they wrote their first album. And what a lot of people don't know is that they didn't sing on that album. They basically, uh, the album was recorded with session singers, uh, Phil and, and Bill produced it. And then they went out and got faces to, to represent the band. Oh, an early Millie Vanilli then. Yeah, exactly. And so in those days, you know, pop, top of the pops was the leading. You could, as long as you charted, you could stay alive 
uh, and build, you know, incrementally build week by week your your fame and popularity just by appearing on that show. And that's how they became famous was just getting hits. You know, they got three or four big hits off that first record. And so he had he had them. He had a group called Marmalade. He had a group called Clem Curtis and the Foundations. Um, he had a group, uh, Mac and Katie Kassoon, um, Blue. Um, so I, I kind of helped uh, curate, uh, you know, a press department for him. I did writing, uh, wrote press releases and did, did some interviews. And, and then I ended up, so I stayed there for about a year, uh, uh, maybe a little under a year. And one of the, after the Bay City Rollers first record, they fired those guys, Bill and Phil, because they thought they could do better on their own. They were getting all the claim. And, you know, same thing as Millie Vanilli kind of story. And then, uh, so they said, okay, fine. So what they did is they had a second record in the can for the Bay City Rollers for their next record, already done. Uh-huh. And they gave that record to, and they found five new guys called <laughs> Kenny. So they, these guys were from, uh, I don't know, they were from, Sheffield or Liverpool or, you know, some area uh, north of London. And uh, so that group became famous on the Bay City Rollers second record. And I worked with them. And while I was working with them. What were they called? Them, there was, pardon? They were, they were called what? Kinney. Like the name Kinney, K-E-N-N-Y. Oh, uh-huh. And so if you look them up, they, they actually got the second Bay City Rollers and that became their, their break into the business. Hilarious story. So I ended up uh, working with a lot of these fanzine magazines and I, uh, one of the editors of one called Poster Magazine asked me, would I come and be an editor for his magazine? Mm. And that's what I did. So I ended up going there and I helped him run. It was, we were a small team, four people. You know, it was him. Uh, it was a guy that had a fishing magazine, me, and a, and a graphic design artist. And I, um, the the concept of the magazine was you could get four fold-out posters of famous people. So you get the editorial would be on the back of the pictures, and then they could pull it out. You know, and uh, I was the only writer, but I said, "Hey guys, you know, we, we have to make it look like we're we're more than one person. So how about if I just make up some names, and I'll write it, but I'll be you know, I have some synonyms so that people think that we have more than one writer. And then I helped him develop a second magazine called Superstar. And uh, and so I did that the last year I was in London. And then when I came back to Los Angeles, I actually wanted to continue in the writing vein. Um, but a lot of the magazines, um, you know, what I did in England didn't really translate well to the American market per se. I didn't really want to write for those, but I, you know, I, I tried Billboard. Um, Rolling Stone, most everything was on spec, like you do a spec review if you like it, and we'll give you, we might assign you to something, but it wasn't about any money being exchanged. <laughs> so um, it was all trial and error, and I just, well, I really am not going to waste my time doing that. So I got a job working part time uh, at a photo mat booth, believe it or not. Just during the day, just to kill, just to get a little bit of money. I didn't come back to the States with a lot of money in my pocket. And while I was at Photomat, I got a call. I was reading a Soul magazine, which is a very popular R&B, uh, one of the oldest Soul magazines in, in, in the industry. Back then, it started in the mid, uh, early 70s. Regina Jones started it. 
and I saw in their in the staff of their uh, team uh, that Bruce Tolleman, a guy that I had gone to college with, who's become a very successful, you know, uh, photographer, music, uh, entertainment photographer in his own right, was on their staff as their, you know, uh, photo editor. Mm. And so I reached out to him and told him I was looking to get a gig. Maybe I could, you know, do some freelance work for Soul Magazine. And he goes, yeah, I can introduce you to Regina, but there's a, you might, I know this guy at Motown, Bob Jones, and he's looking for an assistant. And uh, you might want to give him a call. And so that's what ended, I, I ended up calling him while I was in this photomat booth, which I don't <laughs> know if you remember what those, they were little small huts. They were like, they're very they're small. I'm like six one. And every time I moved around that thing, I knocked something over. My knees <laughs> hit something, you know. Uh, so it was really a funny. I only did it for a couple of weeks, but I mean, and they also I got calls that they were going to rob the place as well, which I thought was hilarious. Like, why would you be <laughs> robbing a you know? But it was right in the hood in uh, Los Angeles on Rodeo Drive, and uh, uh, so I got a call from Bob Jones. I went in, and I ended up being a uh, hired as a writer publicist for Motown when they moved uh, from Detroit to Los Angeles into the CNN building on Sunset, I was, that's the same time that I got uh, hired. And my first responsibility was to unload <laughs> their <laughs> press packages, you know, boxes, you know, and then, uh, but I worked with, uh, you know, uh, mostly um, second tier artists at Motown. Yeah. Um, I had access to a few of the big names, but at that time they had, this was in the mid, this was in 77. So, you know, they had uh, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Diana Ross, the Jackson Five, um, Smokey Robinson, the Four Tops, the Temptations. I mean, they, all their big, big names were really at the peak of their careers at that time. Uh, and then, but there was a guy named Mike Roshkin, uh, who was the vice chairman, the head of PR. They also had, you know, Rick James, they had uh, the Commodores. So I worked with those guys and they were starting out more so. And I also worked with Dennis Edwards and Eddie Kendricks, who had left the Temptations. And they were, you know, in the fermenting their solo careers. I worked with Junior Walker and the All-Stars, the Dynamics at Superiors, um, Willie Hutch. You know, some really great talents, uh, but they weren't the, you know, the the peak performers that were on the label. But my most exciting time um, at Motown in those early days, and I worked there for about a year, was uh, being in a meeting with Stevie Wonder during the songs of the Key of Life. Uh, you know, when that when that record came out, he called a meeting um, for every, all the major departments. He wanted to have a, a, a meeting to find out what was the marketing PR strategy for taking advantage of that album, which to me, when I look back at his career, I still think that's probably the best record he's ever recorded in my mind. Is that the first uh, two record set that Motown had ever put out? It was, it was, I'm not sure if it was the first one, but it may have been. I know it was the first one that they put out with a 24-page songbook oh. because, um, you know, it was a really big packaging in those days. You know, albums had the shrink wrap. And, you know, the first meeting I was in with, with Stevie Wonder, um, he, he started the meeting and he says, well, you know, I want to hear from you guys what you're going to do for me, but I want to tell you what I want. And the first thing that he said is he wants a billboard in Times Square that is so big and so bright, even he can see it. 
And that's how we <laughs> that's how he started off the meeting. So I was just, you know, I was so in awe of his, you know, he was a young guy at that time, you know, he uh when in his early twenties. He wasn't that old when he recorded that record. Because well, he started uh, when he was a little kid, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I had remembered him from before. So that was real. I just remember being so geeked, uh, you know, after the meeting, I'm calling a friend and said, man, I was just in this meeting with Stevie Wonder, and this is what he said. And then as part of my PR function, um, there were stories breaking about the fact that the, the, the shrink wrap and the 24-page soundbook had caused, uh, you know, uh, additional um, returns. Because the records were warped, supposedly, and um, so I I did some research to find out what is the percentage of warpage in all records, not only two record sets, but any records. Um, and I found out that the percentage that he that the, I think a writer had done a story in Billboard or whatever, claiming that there was more warpage. And the truth of the matter is, the warpage there was the amount that he. Uh, noted was correct, but it wasn't any higher than even most single albums at that time. Mm-hmm. So that was one of my first uh, experiences at Motown when I also found out that, you know, there was a very much of a caste system at Motown and I was in the lower caste. And I wasn't <laughs> supposed to, I did this story by talking to the manufacturing department, a guy in the department, but he wasn't the head of the department. And when he gave me the information and then I was able to get this story and billboard to turn it around. But then after the story broke, I got um, pulled to the side by the head of manufacturing who said I had no authority to come to her department and create a story without getting her approval first. Even though it was a positive story. Yeah, even though it was a positive story. And I got burned. I almost got fired on another thing because uh, I was pitching the Commodores to a guy at Newsweek, and I didn't realize that I wasn't allowed to call Newsweek. That my main responsibility was to work uh, primarily just on black press. And Michael Roshkin, who was the vice chairman, he handled all the A-list press. Mm-hmm. So I pitched this guy, call him up. I forgot what his name was, and I said, "Hey, I'm." I'm um, I'm from Motown. I have this new group. They've got a hit on his charts. I want to see if you might be interested in doing something. And he goes, well, what's your name? And I told him my name. He goes, well, you know, I usually uh, work with somebody else from Motown, usually calls me. And I said, oh, well, okay, well, I'm calling you. Is it, can we talk? Or are you saying you can't talk to me? He goes, yeah, let me, let me call you back, you know. And uh, so then I get, uh, so my boss, Bob Jones, the guy who hired me, he goes, what the hell are you doing calling Newsweek? And I said, what do you mean? I didn't know I wasn't allowed to call Newsweek. He goes, no, I can't even call Newsweek. Michael Rothstein <laughs> is the only one that can call Newsweek. <laughs> he goes, and he wants to talk to you right now. Go up to his office. He, I, I don't even know if, you, if, he's, if, he, uh, if we can save your job. He might want to fire you. So oh I God. said, you're serious? He goes, yeah, and he's serious. So I go up there and I meet with Mike Rashkin. And, uh, you know, he laid down sort of the gauntlet of the rules and everything. I said, hey, well, you know, I'm sorry. Now that I know, I, I'll make sure not to do that again. So he didn't fire me. But, you know, it was just one of those things where I knew it was not a place where I was going to really grow and be nurtured. You know, because there were so many things that you weren't allowed to do that would thwart your creativity and just your enthusiasm, I think, you know. Yeah. So moving on from Motown had to happen. 
Yeah, I had to go. I knew after that, I knew that it was my time would be short. So, and then I then I got laid off from Motown, mm. um, and that gave me the opportunity to uh, take on a uh, a temporary job initially with uh, Rogers and Cowan of um, Relation. I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf, and that's Pastime Paradise uh, from the Stevie Wonder album Songs in the Key of Life, which won the Grammy for Album of the Year in 1977. And the success of that album was due, at least in part, to my guest, Ramon Hervey II, who has worked with a number of great musicians and entertainers from Little Richard to Richard Pryor to Vanessa Williams. He's also written a great book called The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. Uh, Ramon Hervey, race is a theme in your book. You talk about the difficulties uh, Rick James faced getting his record on MTV and uh, the unfair practices that favored Dick Clark's American Bandstand and hindered Don Cornelius's uh, soul train. And I wonder, is is race still an issue in the music business? Yes, it's still definitely a struggle. Um, because it, the the system hasn't, you know, I think the problem is, is that the record industry is just a reflection of uh, contemporary culture. That's all it is. You know, it's, it can't set 
you know, it can't be, uh, you can't find one industry that's going to be able to operate uh, fully uh, in a way in which it, you know, it eliminates racism or social injustice when the whole culture is, is you know, part of it. So in, unless the culture changes then the companies that, you know, whether it's entertainment, whether it's banking, whether it's politics, then they get the benefit of that, those cultural changes and it, it starts to be ingrained in the people. But I don't think that, I think in all fairness to the record industry or even the entertainment industry, it's just one source. And I think it, it does shine a light on things more so because most of the people in, you know, where, where you know, our business is based on public consumption and public knowledge of our uh, of the artist. You know, the more popular, the more famous they are. So it brings more attention to the injustices that happen than maybe other industries where people don't really they're not they don't have a watchful eye on what kind of injustices are happening behind the scenes in those businesses because the people in those businesses are not public figures. So I think that uh, it is much harder. Uh, you know, I think Barry was a, I mean, he, he moved the needle in many, many ways. Uh, and I, I felt really blessed as a black man, a young black uh, business guy, you know, trying to get into business to have that, that training. And uh, because he was the most successful uh, black in the, in the, in the entertainment business at that time with what he did with the company and the fact that he was able to cross over so many of those artists. Um, and he not only did the whole idea of not putting blacks on the cover, but he also didn't want to put whites on the cover with Tina Marie, for example, on her first, he didn't want people to, uh, to know that she wasn't black. Hmm. So he, her very first single came out as a white out, you know, as a white single thing, um, because he was afraid that because she was being released on Motown, there would be backlash to her being white. Like, why are you putting out a white singer? So they wanted her to, you know, to find an audience first before they tell people she's white. So it worked both both ways, you know. But yeah, all those, uh, you know, having access to mainstream media um, uh, is so important to any artist's career, you know. So what Don was was facing uh, with Soul Train, what uh, Rick James. Uh, help to bring shine a light on with MTV was just you know we're as good as any white artist or any other artist and if you just give us the access you'll find that people will appreciate and enjoy our music um, and uh, so it just made it very hard for um, any you know labels and also you know every label if Barry wouldn't have crossed over those artists like Diana Ross and Marvin Gaye he would not have the you know he wouldn't be looked upon historically in the same way. If all his artists only got played on R&B radio stations, it wouldn't be significant. But he was able to get these people on Ed Sullivan and all the major talk shows at the time uh, covered to them, you know, um, and multiple times. Well, I think, I think AM radio in the 60s was more uh, open than radio is today, less uh, genre specific i mean listening to am radio in los angeles when i was growing up you would hear a motown song and the beatles and roger miller and glenn campbell all mixed up together frank sinatra and all be on the am radio 
now I think with with streaming, particularly when you when you subscribe to a streaming service, it's going to play for you the music that it knows you like uh, over and over again. Uh, right, so but the, even the streaming, what they've done is, you know, social media as a whole is it's only 13 years old in terms of it's reaching mass consumption, you know, so it's kind of a child still, but or a teenager. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it continues to morph and, and change. But it all it did was, you know, the streaming is really in the favor of the, of the companies, but for the artists, they're still being pigeonholed into uh, charts or playlists. They call them playlists now, um, and they're but they're done by genre. So blocks are, you know, it's still tough to get blocks play on Spotify and you know now you don't even have you know uh you don't have the you don't have the AM radio you don't have rock radio you don't have you know uh R&B radio so you don't have these other you're kind of stuck with either Spotify or Apple Music and if you get on those playlists um then radio will come on but radio's really just become like we only play the hits they don't break any artist and the costs for getting on radio are you know, exorbitant for singles. I mean, only the big artists really use radio now in the same way that we used to use it back in the, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, up until, you know, streaming. I mean, even downloading, um, when you think of downloading, they, that, who would have thought that that would be, you know, old passe, you know, it didn't really last that long. It took nine years. I think I remember reading an article that, um, in the ninth year of iTunes, um, Adele was the first artist to, to just sell two million records after nine years. Mm -hmm. You think of all the famous artists that were on, you know, they're out there that could have, you know, YouTube, anybody else. And it took nine years for one, for the first artist to even sell two million records. And then when Spotify came out with streaming, then Apple Music went and changed, you know, they decided, well, we can't compete because we're still downloading. So they actually got rid of their own downloading system and changed to a streaming platform to make Apple Music to, you know, uh, reveal Apple Music. Well, if, if a person, you probably know this, if a person streams a song, does the artist make as much as they would if they had bought the single? You know, a forty-five or a twelve inch or something. No, they're making they're making less. And also, what people don't uh, what what I streaming uh, on both uh, sites uh, or stores, whatever you want to call them, and also for YouTube, if they don't listen to a certain amount of time, you don't get credit for the streaming. So if someone posts, you know, pleasures your record, you know, streams your record, and they only listen for ten seconds. You don't get credit for that. I forget what the break is, but there is a break. So, you, so unless they, they reach a certain point, um, you don't get credit for those streams. Hmm. And the, the amount of money that you make, it's uh, it's almost like the record industry reverted back to the singles industry in the 50s and the 60s, where you basically, um, the only way you made money was if you could sell singles. And then in the 70s, when they, you know, uh, I think the streaming services have pretty much destroyed or made the album format archaic. 
a lot of artists wow. don't even put out their music on a on a hard copy CD. You can't even buy a CD. You can buy vinyl, and you can right. buy it. But you yeah, can't there's been a little bit of rebirth in vinyl, but yeah, CDs are no one does it anymore. I mean, first of all, the younger generation they don't even uh, they miss the whole transition. <laughs> from album to CD and all that stuff, you know? Um, they just, they don't even know. It's almost like if you gave them a regular telephone, they wouldn't know how to use it, you know? It's like <laughs> nobody owns a CD player, you know? That's what, uh, no, I don't, I don't even know. I don't have anything to play this on, you know? That's, a, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's pretty scary. I, I want to talk to you about some of the great uh, people that you worked with, that you talk about in your, in your book, Ramon Hervey, The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. And I don't think I'm going to get my 15 minutes. I read your book and yet I'm I'm still not famous and I'm, I'm going to have to see you. <laughs> but um, what about uh, Richard Pryor? I mean, you, you talk about him in, in your book and it was a really wonderful uh, section in your book because I'm a admirer of Richard Pryor. And I remember when that first film came out of him live i think it's richard prayer in concert or something yeah richard prayer live in concert i think that was the first time anybody ever did that you know before there were hbo specials or anybody yeah and that that thing was a side-splitting hilarious film that was also serious oh yeah he richard uh was just a he's an enigma and he was i was so blessed to have an opportunity to work with him because at that time you know when i moved to rogers and cowan i got a chance to work with a lot of famous people as you noted in the book but one probably one of the the ones one of the ones i was most proud of was you know getting an opportunity to represent uh richard Pryor. um and when i you know because I was the only black executive at the company and to get a star, a black star of his magnitude, he was already a star before I signed him. So he brought more to me than I brought to him initially. Um, and uh, so that was a real blessing and I was really happy. And I had so many plans or ideas on how I could help him elevate his stardom. But I didn't realize all the baggage that he was bringing in with his personal struggles in his life, and which I think held him back and to some degree. But they also played into a persona that I think few people in our business have ever been able to achieve. One is when you have uh, time after time of missteps or things where you, you know, either crises or you're falling out of grace with the public, um, and you find a way to turn them into pluses in your life, and you find a way to make people laugh about them, and then you create a marketing strategy where basically you record an album, you do a concert film, and you do a tour. And if you look at the history of his career, this is a system that he did and all of if you go through all of his films and his albums you can explore and experience all of his missteps and his you know his travails and and how he handled them you know and that i think is really remarkable to uh i have never seen that happen you know normally when people make the kind of mistakes that richard made you're trying to mend and and, and the wounds and and limit the collateral damage. And then he would just come out and just throw it right at everybody. And he never lost 
his his audience. You know, they never gave up on him. They always they loved his vulnerability and his ability to just you know be honest. Um, that whole Richard Pryor Live in Concert film, in fact, wasn't my idea, but it was an idea that I knew could work if he would agree to do it. And so my my role in that was to convince him and his manager that this should really happen. And I was lucky to get the call from this guy, Bill Sargent. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he became famous because he was he had been on a, a mission to get the Beatles to, uh, and he offered them $50 million to, to, to do a concert, a reunion concert. It never happened, but he's the one who called me and said, hey, you know, and, and Richard already had a tour lined up and everything. I said, I don't know if the timing, do you have money? Because he's going to want money. I know he's going to make a lot of, he's going to want a big fee. And that's how we we ended up uh, getting the deal together. His manager said, yeah, Ramon, you, uh, you broker the deal and I got Richard, he's going to do it. And so when we did that, you know, one of the things that had happened before that, he had, ple- he wasn't arrested, I don't think, but police came to his his house, or maybe they did arrest him. But anyways, he uh, was having an, uh, an argument with his his ex his wife, and she was trying to leave the house. And so he shot uh, four all four tires flat on the Mercedes, and basically said, "Well, you can leave, but you ain't leaving in that car." <laughs> <laughs> and then that became one of the you know, the jokes that he used, and that that's one of the the funny bits in the Richard Pryor Live in Concert. And as I chronicled in the book, she served him divorce papers. At that concert, we found out uh, this guy was mulling around that that this was in Long Beach, California, where that was filmed. And they were trying to serve him. And we had an after party set up and everything. And we ended up having to squash it because we wanted to get Richard out of the building so he couldn't be served. <laughs> so all that was going on, you know, uh, but yeah, he, he did that when he, when he almost, you know, committed suicide, tried to commit suicide and blew himself up. That became part of, or, you know, a part of a, the, he never dwelled on that, but he always included it. Whatever he had done that with that had been, uh, you know, known to the public in terms of, uh, uh, I mean, he, one thing after another, he he always brought it back, you know, found a way to make people laugh about it. What, what, what kind of a person was he if, when you were sitting with him, talking to him? Was, was he he was very of- low key, very low key, very understated um, and very, very unpredictable. You just never knew. I mean, sometimes he would call me and tell me that he wanted to know the dailies on on his film. Hey, can you check variety? Let me know what was uh, how much did my film do? Whatever you know, it'd be all about business. And then another time, you know, he uh, he would call me about something else, like canceling a date at three in the morning for a show that's not going to happen until nine o'clock the next night, and telling me him and his his then girlfriend wife uh, Jennifer, uh, they were both loaded, and they both told me that he was suffering from gastroenteritis. And at the time, I didn't know what gastroenteritis meant, <laughs> and I had to I had to actually look it up in a dictionary. I said, "Well, that's a stomachache." I mean, you, you're canceling a concert that's not for 15 hours. You know, they said they had a doctor's prognosis and all that. So I said, "You know what? Let's just settle down." He wanted me to, you know, in those days, you couldn't. To make an announcement about a cancellation, you could go to AP or whatever. This was a Fort Benefit concert in LA. And I, I didn't think it was necessary to do a whole big 
I said, let me just talk to the guy first of all, because he's going to be pissed that you're canceling and see how he wants to handle it. We'll come up with a solution to, again, limit the collateral damage and the fallout uh, behind you canceling. But, you know, I, so I got used to not knowing what was going to happen whatever time, whenever he called, you know. <laughs> well, Ramon Harvey, the one place that your book, The Fame Game, uh, bleeds over from professional memoir to personal memoir is when you discuss Vanessa Williams. And and I was wondering, you know, when is he going to talk about Vanessa Williams? But I guess you saved the best for last. <laughs> there you go. Um, and uh, what, what did, was it difficult for you to write about it? You, you're, 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 you're pretty honest in your, in that chapter. Well, I, I tried to be honest and authentic in the whole throughout the book because I don't I didn't want people to feel like I, I have no I'm blessed and I feel great to have worked with all the people that I worked and I tried to be honest and, and give people in a sense of what you know fame is like an emotion and and I don't think that people that aren't have not who are not famous or have never been around famous people understand that it's very fleeting and it's an emotional response it's just like like an athlete that where the adrenaline is charging on the field and whatever it's it's momentary it's not something that stays with you even with famous people they don't live in that lane all the time but they put on the mask or they masquerade the fame when they need to you know uh when they're promoting something or whatever it's quite it helps it helps it's that bond between their artistry and um and commerce you know that the level of fame that you achieve is going to impact the level of your artistry and how much money you make. So, you know, I, I think that's what I tried to do is just to try to give people sort of a, a passenger's ride and, you know, trying to deal with the emotion and how, how do you help these artists reach their, you know, success as opposed to fame? Cause I never talked to any of these people about uh, fame, to be honest, we always talked about, success and one of my tenets in the book i think you you probably may remember was you know i don't believe fame is a destination it's an accolade and it's in a byproduct of being successful so if you if you don't obsess about being famous obsess about be your best and, and be successful and in the chapter about vanessa i think the difference why because that was uh when you're involved with someone that you love and you're also in a leadership capacity as her manager first as her publicist and then as her manager um the amount of emotion <laughs> that is attached to that relationship is what made it so much different than um, my other you know relationships which all had some level of emotion you know you want to you know it's all about winning i mean the whole game is really that's the the, the fame game is about winning and everyone's trying to figure out the the best way to win you know, so in the chapter about Vanessa, I thought it would be awkward, more awkward not to mention, you know, uh, I'd have to actually uh, hoard too much and not make it genuine and, and authentic. Uh, and so I did, you know, share some of our, you know, uh, some of the missteps I made in our marriage, uh, but also the fact that at the end of the day, um, I think that we both succeeded in our relationship our business relationship and in building um 
come as it may be a dysfunctional family. I think any divorce turns what you hope is going to be forever into some kind of dysfunction and you have to learn how to manage that. And I think we've done a great job uh, as exes of managing our family and keeping the bond of love, you know, that we passed on to three beautiful kids and even a second marriage by her. I kind of have gotten, you know, her daughter is uh, a fourth daughter through her relationship with the marriage to Rick Fox is almost like, a, you know, it's like a daughter to me. It's not like an adopted daughter, you know, so I, I got a lot of uh, benefit from uh, great things, love and appreciation and, and just becoming a father, which at the end of the day is the greatest role of my life. It's been the most, uh, you know, fulfilling and and I cherish it more than, you know, being a manager, publisher. It doesn't matter who else I ever work with. Nothing will top, uh, you know, being a dad. Well, it's a pretty remarkable story. And I think people, amazingly today, I think people who know Vanessa Williams know her from Desperate Housewives or whatever. And they, they don't even know about the Miss America um, penthouse debacle. Shortly after she became the first African-American Miss America, penthouse published pictures of her naked i don't think and i think today nobody would care at all i think uh, oh i mean those pictures are like child's play almost yeah. compared to what what you can see There's now. a rap <laughs> video with megan the stallion yeah yeah <laughs> but um uh so she relinquished her title which Although you didn't tell her what to do, you thought that that was the correct thing for her to do. You pointed out in your book that uh, they weren't they weren't going to let her do the things that Miss America does anyway, and she'd already been crowned. She might as well just move on. Yeah, I, that's exactly how I thought. I, I think that the thing that and history has not done well in telling that part of the story. She did relinquish the crown, but she wasn't forced to relinquish it. She was asked to do it because the Miss America pageant were they were afraid of getting involved legally because it was so close to their big money maker the the Miss America pageant and so they were just crossing their fingers and hoping they didn't know if they were if they had legal rights to fire her yeah. because she didn't um she said the pictures weren't uh that they didn't have a model release um so that she was you know it was a miscarriage of justice that those pictures were ever published. Um, and, and, and as you say, those pictures are tame, not only by today's standards, but they were pretty tame by the standards of 1985 or whatever it was. Well, yeah, I think what the Miss America quote-unquote pageant represented, though, I think was uh, they set up a brand that was based on Goody Two Shoes. And, you know, and also she was the first Black. So, you know, Guccione saw that opportunity um, when this guy, Tom Chappelle, brought him the pictures. And he, you know, he zeroed in on it. And he was the, the behind-the-scenes strategic setting this whole thing up with nobody knowing or no way to prevent it by the time that we uh, i found out about it it was like a couple of weeks away from being published and um you know they basically gave her 72 hours to make a decision on what she wanted to do and that's what i was brought in to manage that process of what are we going to make what is the statement that we're going to make to address their request and, you know, I took a red eye that night um, 
uh, her guy, this guy named Dennis Daldell, who was kind of handling her at the moment as a favor to the family because he was a neighbor. He called me up and told me, can you help me with this um, situation? And uh, so I was brought into it, but it was much bigger uh, once I got involved than I realized because I, I, forgot that she was Miss New York. So the fact that she had won the Miss America pageant was, was a bigger deal for New Yorkers than it was for the rest of the country. Mm. Um, and so when I got to New York that morning um, to go out and meet her and her family for the first time, there was an encampment of over 400 media people outside of her house. Wow. And I went, oh my God, this is a much bigger, is this really, do people really care this much about this? Yeah, and it really was, you know. And then when we did the press conference, I timed it out. You know, I said, "Look, here's what I suggest: we do a statement one time, you read it, and then you walk away, get on with your life." I don't know what you're going to say, but we need to set it up. And I suggest we do a press conference. We'll do it at the very end of the 72 hours, so that the pageant and everybody finds out at the same time what your decision is. And that's basically what we ended up doing. And the press conference was. You know, it was bedlam. I mean, it was crazy. It's the craziest press conference in my whole career. I've never talked it. Just mm -hmm. people screaming and leaping over each other. And it was just, uh, I just couldn't believe it. It was so, uh, it was very crazy. But it was, uh, yeah, that's, that was a really, I have never done anything like that um, before um, on that level. Um, and it was, again, that was another opportunity as a publicist you know, and as a black publicist to be on a natural a national platform on a story that was huge, much bigger, like I said, than I realized. And, you know, at that point, I'm, my main concern was just to, uh, you know, do her right and, 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 and make this come off as, as best as possible. Because people have asked me, you know, was it love at first sight? I said, no, I was there on, on working, trying to protect my own image and to try to do the right things. The love was not even entered the equation it wasn't you know it was, came after that but uh yeah well, that was, uh, under, under your guidance it's important to note that 10 years after the she gave up the uh miss america crown because she was naked in penthouse uh she was singing on a disney uh animated disney film and i think when you when disney says you're cool and you know the whole family can enjoy vanessa williams I think you know that's a triumph. Yeah, that was a big that was a big step. Um, one because I think people come from you know there's a saying that you know any publicity is good publicity, and I never believed that. Uh, even you know not not no relation to Vanessa, but I just had never thought of that as in my you know experience as a as a publicist and working with some of the biggest clients. I always thought that uh, negative publicity is negative publicity. And it's very difficult to turn it around to positive publicity. And for Vanessa, it took 10 years just to get people to not say, just to get her name back, where you could actually read an article with just her name without the, the catch line or like a tagline. Her brand was Vanessa Williams, formerly the, the throne Miss America for nude pictures. I mean, it was <laughs> everywhere, everywhere for 10 years. And I just said, just one day, I'd like to just see if I could ever get her name back for her, that would be great. And it came back to her when she, um, the first time it came back to her before the Disney deal was when she was in Kiss of the Spider Woman and she got reviewed by David Rich, who was a very well-known uh, Broadway critic. 
and in his in her uh, in his review of opening night, he was the first journalist in the New York Times to say just Vanessa Williams. Mm-hmm. And then that opened the floodgates to, you know, Disney came after that and it, she got back, you know, she got back ownership of her life or her name in the real sense of the word, you know. I mean, that still is part of her story, it will never change, but it got repositioned in a retrospective way as opposed to it being always the lead item. Sometimes the snow comes down in June. Sometimes the sun goes round. That's Save the Best for Last, performed by Vanessa Williams. 
and released in January 1991 on her album The Comfort Zone. The song, which was nominated for Song of the Year uh, at the Grammy Awards that year, was written by Phil Goldston, Wendy Waldman, and John Lind. Vanessa Williams was managed by, and later married, my guest, Ramon Hervey II. And he tells the whole amazing story in The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. Well, of course, there's a whole lot more in the book, The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes, including stories of Bette Midler and Babyface and Little Richard and all that. And it's a great book. Ramon Hervey II, thank you so much for spending some time on From the Bookshelf talking about it. I appreciate it, Jerry. Thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to you. Ramon Hervey II, the author of The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf. Ramon Hervey was married to and managed Vanessa Williams, and we just heard her hit Save the Best for Last, which was written by Wendy Waldman, John Lind, and Phil Goldston. Phil Goldston has been a guest on From the Bookshelf a couple of times, and uh, we've talked about songwriting, including the writing of Save the Best for Last. Here's what Phil Goldston had to say. I write, um, I call it informed writing. Uh, I'm aware of what's going on in pop music and, and other genres in which I write, and I'm aware to a degree of who's looking for what. Sometimes I'm extremely aware. Sometimes I'm called and asked. Um, so with that kind of general background to the consciousness of the market, if you will, and I don't just mean that commercially, I mean the artistic market as well, my writing is informed on the other hand, by and large, I've been most successful when I've just written whatever is coming out that day or those days. And then when it's coming out, if it, if it has a particular sensibility to me that, that seems appropriate for an artist, well, I know I'm headed in that direction, and that might be my first stop. But a lot of times, I only have kind of a vague idea of that. That will become more clear to me when I start to make the demonstration recording the demo. And then I really have to think about how I'm going to present it and to whom that might appeal. So so when you're first writing a song, it comes to you as 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 Phil Galston. But then after a while, you think, oh, Cher, I could do this for Cher. Yeah, although although I'd, I'd shade that this way. Um, sure, it's coming out of Phil Galston or, or from whatever source I'm getting it. I'm, I'm not one of those who looks up to the sky and says, thank you. Thank you for sending this through me, but I certainly have had my experiences of it, of feeling that there's some other influence over this work. But that said, one of the great joys of writing songs is really not terribly different from that which uh, creative people speak of when they create particularly, particularly novelists, poets, etc., and that is that you can take on the role of any character you want. I mean, I frequently will note that I've been happily married for 30 years. And in that time, um, I didn't really have a lot of motivation to write a heartsick, lovesick song. I didn't have a lot of romantic tragedy in that period. In fact, I had none. So how could I write that? Well, I could write that by doing exactly what uh, other authors do, and that's imagine a scenario or be struck by a scenario that I read about or heard about that motivated me. So there's a certain uh, acting element in it. You, you there's a tremendous... Uh, uh, I mean, you can call it acting because I think you're still thinking of it, and there's nothing the matter with this, you're still thinking of it as writing songs as being a kind of a performance. And there is a truth to that. 
but uh, what I'd say before that happens, there is just the, what's the backstory? I think the literary analog to songwriting is short stories. That's, that, I mean, that's how I see it. What you leave out is at least as important as what you put in, sometimes more so. So if you, when, when Wendy Waldman and I wrote the lyrics to Save the Best for Last, I wrote the music with John Lind. And when I wrote the lyric with Wendy, who's one of my favorite collaborators on the lyric side, we spent a lot of time, actually, bashing out a story, going back and forth. What is the story? What's going on here? And then when we were done with the lyric, or as we wrote the lyric, we gradually were, of course, removing things. Certainly there are limitations of time in songwriting and limitations of space in a way because, you know, you've got to deal not only with the length of it but the pace of it and the structure of it. So you know more about that song than we do because there's this backstory that informs Yeah, yeah, I know a lot about it. (laughs) No, and that's true. Uh, I I, I say that that's true of a lot of the songs I've written uh, in my life, and it's particularly true after writing that song, uh, well, well before the time it was successful. It just was a great breakthrough moment in, in chewing the fat and having fun with that. And then it leads to all the inevitable questions. Well, would this narrator say this? You know, would this character do that? Gee, I don't know. And, and how am I conveying that to the audience? And then, of course, the more you get into that, the more each word and musical nuance, is not, this is not just about lyrics, become really really important that's it for this week's from the bookshelf i hope you enjoyed the program and we'll come back and see us again next time in the meantime you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts you can even get your smart speaker to play from the bookshelf by saying alexa play gary shapiro's from the bookshelf and she will until next time for from the bookshelf i'm gary shapiro take care see you soon